Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 307 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Strength from Sweden, an interview with Alza Friedmark Kersley. My name is Rachel Barnes. And I'm Matt Sabatello. I'm so excited to be co-hosting this interview with my good friend and former podcast guest, Rachel Barnes. Rachel is a life, health, and wellness coach who specializes in Lyme disease. Rachel, can you start by introducing Asa and give us a little bit of background before we start the podcast interview? It was such a pleasure to speak with Asa today. She is truly an incredible woman and an inspiration to us all. Her journey is inspiring. She went from, you know, having no resources and awful symptoms to fighting her way through the healthcare system in Sweden and as she says, clawing her way back to health. And she's now so much more vibrant and has so much life and is inspired to help others. So we're so excited to have Asa here on the show today. Hi, Asa. Welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. We are so excited to have you here today and to hear your story and for you to help so many people in this community. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I think to get started, we'd like some background info. Just tell us about where you grew up, where you're from, and kind of what your childhood was like. I'm now 47, and I live in Sweden. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s in a small town in Sweden called Linköping. My parents divorced when I was four, so I grew up with my mother, and uh, she had another child. So I had a half sister who's about five years younger than me. So there was the three of us in the family. I used to see my dad every second weekend. Uh, we grew up in a, in a working class family in a millennial kind of um, complex um, where, uh, yeah, it was no traffic. It was kind of a safe area. Um, all the cars were parked on the outside of the of the whole kind of area so it was a safe safe-ish enough environment to grow up in um we didn't have a huge amount of money but we didn't really have lack either it was an all right um it was an all right childhood um yeah that sounds lovely like a like a small quaint safe community and the lack of traffic I'm a little jealous I'm gonna say (laughs) (laughs) So would you say um, you grew up in a place that you just had a normal childhood? Do you remember being being sick ever? No, I was, I was a fairly um, healthy child, I think. Um, I had a flu, flu a couple of times, but that was about it. Uh, um, and I've always viewed myself as, as a healthy person most of my life I've never really been one of these people that I mean I remember the flu was going around and it was me and one other person in school and everyone else was homesick so mm-hmm. I was I, I can I've always considered myself healthy and quite a strong person mm. we can tell that already so, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about um what what you do and what what you um do career-wise what I do now uh, now I work as a research coordinator. I'm um, a nurse, uh, but if you go back far back, I started. Um, so I, I uh, after school, after uh, what you'd probably call college in in America, I moved straight to England, and I, I meant to to stay there for maybe. A couple of months and then travel to Australia and then go home and do my um, 
uh, go back to university and, and become something. But I ended up staying in London for uh, 12 years. So, mm. <laughs> so I worked uh, in London. I worked in, in bars. At first, I worked in the Camden Market. And then uh, I started working in bars and restaurants and uh, making my own little niche of life. And I used to party quite hard and uh, I didn't live a very healthy life, <laughs> but um, I had fun. Great. So what do you think, um, what were your dreams and goals that you remember growing up from when you were a child to now and um, just anything that you really desired and wanted to, to come in your life? Hmm, that's a difficult one because I've never really, I come from a family where, where you don't really plan ahead or uh, my dad's family is a, a farming family and my mum's side is more of a work hand. They, they, they didn't have their own farm. So um we didn't really have goals. I mean, I was, I think, the first person from my family to go to university, maybe the second. One of my cousins went, or a couple of my cousins actually went before me. But uh, on my mum's side, I think I was the first. So we didn't really plan for the future. It was more kind of, let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and there, were, there weren't really any expectations for me to do anything specific with my life. Mm. and really when I was around uh, when I was in my 20s and I was partying really hard I never really saw myself as living really past 27 <laughs> <laughs> I had that <laughs> that kind of nihilistic uh, thing of uh, being in the 27 club yeah understand that feeling so um when you were being a party girl do you think is that when your symptoms started to develop so tell us a little bit more about when you started to feel uh symptoms of Lyme disease and how that sort of progressed in your life the Lyme disease didn't come till much much later but um so I was in my 40s probably when I started having symptoms uh probably late 30s anyway uh, but I think my first experience that now looking back at that I can connect to Lyme disease was when I was 14, I had rings, uh, I had ring marks on my leg. And um, <clears throat> I obviously never reflected of on Lyme. I'd never even heard of ticks when I was that age. Um, so I didn't really reflect on it. I went to the school nurse and she gave me some hydrocortisone to put on it. And after a few weeks, it went, it went away. So I didn't really think about it. But as I grew older, I would always have an itch on my leg. And, and if I got stressed and it would break out in, in little blotches and things, but I never really reflected over this either back then. Um, but that was probably the first encounter I had with Lyme unless I got it from my parents which I don't know um, but we've had we've always had a far, fast metabolism as you call it so uh, which you've always viewed as really good but now in hindsight I kind of connect it to beings like the body being under stress so it needs more energy um, but um, I didn't Obviously, having quite a strong immune system 
previously and and from my parents and everything I think that it wasn't really a big thing in my life but but two years after I um I had the the rings on my leg um I I was at a party with some friends and somebody threw me a ball I turned around quickly and my my kneecap dislocated and um and that was the same knee as, and, and again, thinking of what I know now, I can connect that to, to the Lyme disease, which probably was in my knee and the collagen being weakened by whatever microbe was, was attacking my tissues. Um, but obviously I, I didn't think about that then and nobody knew about it and nobody talked about ticks back then. So, mm. Yeah, that seems like such a common theme. It's it's you look back now and you're like, oh my gosh, there are all these moments in your life where you're like, huh, that could have been Lyme, huh, that could have been Lyme, right? Yeah. And you second guess yourself. So how did it, how did it um, progress from there um, with your, with your symptoms? Because I know you had some pretty intense symptoms. Yeah. So I, I mean, I lived with the, with this knee pain for, for most of my life. When I lived in London, I used to work, when I worked as a wait, waitress, I always had knee problems. And I used to, we had a, uh, the, the kitchen was downstairs. So I was running up and downstairs all day. And, and I would go to, to emergency room because you never, you get a doctor properly. So I would turn up at the emergency room with my bad knee. <laughs> they would just laugh at me. Um, and go like, oh, maybe you've got rheumatoid arthritis. And I was like, well, I'm in my 20s. Why would I have that? And I was really confused by all this. But um, but it wasn't ever bad enough for me to not live with it. And, and it didn't kind of restrict me in my life too much. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really reflect. As I, was, I was healthy. But when I lived in London, I had... I had episodes of not really liking myself very much and, and living with, uh, um, I was uh, compromised in, in a lot of places where I didn't respect my body enough and I didn't say no to men and I didn't, because I didn't really think that I had a place in life to actually even say no. And that's really so sad now in hindsight as well that it was only like, it was only about a year ago that I realized that what was happening to me back then was not okay. And it was always, even through the Me Too campaign, I was still maintaining that what happened to me was totally my fault. It, it was, I mean, I was never, I was never compromised. But then when I look at it now and I've got children my, my age, then I realized that, God, if that happened to my, my kids, I would be outraged. And so... I think all of these experiences in my life led me to to then being in the place where I was when I when I contracted uh, Lyme the second time or I got bitten by a tick in 2013 uh, and then about it must have only been months later I got pregnant with my third child and and that that experience was so different to my first two who were, uh, so my, uh, my oldest was about eight when I got pregnant with my third and, uh, and so, and six. So I had children who were eight and six and then, and the pregnancies with them were, were 
you know, a fart in space <laughs> compared to this, uh, this pregnancy, which I had, which was um, horrible. I was so ill. I was really, and also I was, I was working nights as a nurse, which, which didn't help, of course, but, but I was contributing all these symptoms to like, oh, I'm so much older now, and uh, I'm really stressed, and, and oh, I've got so much on my plate, and I'm, yeah, so, and also, uh, I went to my midwife and the midwife say, saying, oh, you feel sick, so just eat anything you can. Whatever you can put in your body is good, good energy. So I was eating mainly sugar and, and flour, <laughs> which obviously didn't help. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I remember going like, oh, the only thing I can eat is those sour sweets. So that's what I'd be eating. <laughs> Because that's what the midwife told me that, you know, any energy is good energy. And you kind of go, oh, <laughs> if I'd known then what I knew now, I obviously wouldn't have eaten that. Um, so, but luckily I had my third baby and she was absolutely perfect. She was a bit blue in the face when she came out, but because it was a very quick labor. But I, for some unknown reason, I was never scared through, through my labors that there would be anything wrong with my children. I was just, I just trusted in the process, um, which was a gift because I don't know that obviously that isn't, isn't always the case. Um, but, but she's perfect and uh, we got through it. Uh, but even after, after she was born, I started getting, getting these neurological things where I would uh, I, I was, I was, I've, I've always been a little bit forgetful, but I've been pretty switched on. And working as a nurse, you have to be able to to hold lots of things in your head and and uh, whatever. And I started feeling that I wasn't on top of things. I would always, it was a running joke that I would always leave stuff at, at friends' houses. We had this mummy group where we would meet once a week and and without fail every week I would leave something at everybody's houses <laughs> and I would turn up a week late to the uh to the nurse's office with my baby and I would turn up a week early to to they um like uh these um oh, whatever whatever appointment it was I was out of schedule <laughs> and it was all these small things and and I was also at the time really beating myself up a bit about this I was going like oh you should be this and you should be that and you come on also you should be able to to pull yourself together and everybody else can do it why can't you um so I was and that was obviously adding more stress to myself um so but then I I um and also during that time uh my partner and I who'd been together for for uh, quite a long time uh, decided to get married so for the whole of my uh, my uh, parental leave which is really generous in Sweden we get almost a year and a half off of oh, work wow. with babies so it's it was really kind of it should have been a really nice calm time but obviously I then decided to spend it planning for a wedding <laughs> which probably wasn't in hindsight the best way, uh, but never mind. That's what we did and that's what we decided to do. And, um, but, and also I'm going back, backtracking a bit with, we have this amazing house, which is 
great. It's it's beautiful. It's wonderful, but it's also a a, a big um, a responsibility. Like we were we were constantly renovating and and doing all these things, which also was a huge amount of stress. And then and then working nights and all those kind of things, which were which um, making me incredibly tired. So I started noticing that I was falling asleep at night when I was reading stories to my kids and I just I wasn't on top of things and um, so I, I started looking around I was like something's got to be something's got to give here so I started looking into my my consumption of sugar and I was thinking oh it's got to be this I have always loved sweets and I've always been um, uh, yeah I've always, my whole family has always had a, a massive sweet tooth and that's how we, we've celebrated things and we've miscommiserated with sweets and whatever. So I was thinking, oh yeah, it's probably this, so I'll, I'll cut out sugar. And I went on a course, um, I, I saw a, a newspaper article fr from my town in the local newspaper of a woman who'd, who's describing pretty much my symptoms or this, this fatigue and, and all these things and, and she she'd kind of pinned it down to her sugar consumption and, and sugar addiction. So I went on her course and I got the diagnosis that I'm a sugar addict. And I think <laughs> I probably am, but I think in hindsight, again, I think that might've set me back as well, because in a way that kind of explained to me like, oh, oh I'm, I'm a sugar addict, which means I'm a bit flawed. So I can't do anything about this. And it made me a bit of a victim in my own eyes. I don't think that's what they were teaching, but that's how I explained it to myself. And I gave myself a bit of a, uh, a pass to continue uh, um, eating well, sugar. Paul, I just want to jump in real quick here because so many people I know personally, right? We can call them sugar addicts and they live... I mean, I don't want to say healthy, but they live functional lives without symptoms. So when yeah. I hear you say that you were diagnosed as a sugar addict, as the, the sole contributing factor to your symptoms, I'm kind of scratching my head because I'm thinking, I know so many people that would fit into that category, but aren't sick like you were, right? So did you yeah. ever have that sort of like discrepancy of, well, why do so many other people in my entire family is a sugar addict, as you said earlier, right? Why wasn't the rest of your family suffering the way you were? And why were you different? Did that thought ever cross your mind? It did eventually. Um, I think the first time I did this course, I had a, a really big, um, it actually changed my life a lot because cutting out sugar made me feel a lot better. It really did. And, uh, but I also didn't really want to subscribe to the whole sugar addict thing uh, because I thought, uh, I'll just try this for three months and, and, and see how it goes. And, and then, uh, and then, so I did it just before, uh, like three months before Christmas. And then I made it through Christmas and I thought, yes, I'm so good. And then <laughs> on New Year's Day, I was like, oh, <laughs> let's have some sugar. <laughs> and then I felt awful. So obviously the sugar, it wasn't good for me. But at the same time, yeah, like you're saying, it, it obviously affected me a lot worse than a lot of other people. Um, and thinking about this also, I mean, you know, I know from our offline discussion, you've traveled a lot, right? So you went to South Africa, yeah. Australia, Thailand, you were in London, you're all over the world. 
Did yeah. you ever think that possibly you contracted some sort of foreign illness while you were overseas that wasn't as well known in London, right? Because because in yeah. hearing your story, I'm wondering, you know, you could have picked up a strain of, of Lyme disease now that we know, right? You could have picked up mm -hmm. a strain of any kind of infection or, or viral, you know, virus overseas. So did you ever look at that or big picture approach your travel as maybe being a contributing factor to your health as well? Yeah, not back then, but obviously now I have. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but back then, I, I just didn't have a clue about all these things. So and it didn't it didn't cross my mind. When you mentioned earlier, you know, as, as you said, you sort of this like this, you were a partier, right? You were out partying, you were sort of, mm -hmm. I'll call it like almost self medicating, you weren't feeling well, so you were doing anything to feel better. So yeah. you were you weren't respecting your body. And this is very common when people are very sick, and they're trying to find ways to feel better, and they can't explain their symptoms. But I want to mm. understand better how that impacted your relationship, because you, you had three children with your partner and now husband. Now, mm. how was that impacting your relationship, right? Because when you're a partier, and you're avoiding your symptoms, we know that can cause a lot of relationship strains. And a lot of mm. people listen to this podcast often want to know, how the how the heck do you maintain a relationship through Lyme disease? And how do you never mind, you know, start a new relationship, but get through one while you're sick? So can you share with us some of the struggles you had and looking back how you were able to overcome those struggles to continue you know, to have three healthy children and to have a healthy relationship with your partner at the time? Yeah, um, that's a tough question because I didn't really. <laughs> um, it, the partying part of me with that, that part of my life was before I met my now husband. Um, but back then I did have a very unhealthy relationship with somebody uh that was very on off and and it was all about us both not not respecting our our bodies and our lives um and so yeah it's difficult to to answer that question but but in in being becoming sick when i was after having my third child i did part of my healing was actually leaving my husband and we uh, we we have a quite a strange relationship where we actually we we've split up but we still live in the same house because we have such a big house that we can we have an apartment each but um and we also still help each other out but but i think a big part of it was actually me standing up for myself and, and learning how to love myself because i think I think that for as long as you don't love and respect yourself, then you're never going to heal, uh, and you're never going to you're never going to do the things for yourself that you need to do to get well. And I think that's my biggest learning uh, from this whole experience is that I wasn't respecting myself, and I wasn't, and that's why I got ill because I was just saying yes to everything, and and anyone who asked me of anything, I would just go yeah yeah whatever yeah I'll do it because and and just learning to say no and learning to respect myself has been the biggest biggest um, learning yeah uh, the biggest learning I've, I've got or the biggest uh yeah um, it was it was pivotal it was it was an important yeah. lesson to learn to be able to heal and I think I couldn't agree more in my own personal experience and I think Rachel probably as well but I, I do want to focus on one other piece that you mentioned earlier was when you were 14, you had this rash, which is likely a bullseye rash. And you think you were probably infected with Lyme disease when you were 14. Maybe it was dormant. Maybe it came, you know, on and off throughout your, your childhood until you were 39. 
Do you think you were reinfected at 39 with your third child? Or do you think that your body was just compromised and you were stressed and the dormant Lyme disease came out and made you really sick? You know, what are your thoughts on possible reinfections versus being infected when you were a child and having it just, you know, wreak havoc and coming back out to make you sicker later in life? Um, I think a bit of both, probably in my case, but but mainly I think I was reinfected when I had the tick bite in 2013, because I, I remember how it was on my leg, uh, but higher up. So, and and it did got it did get infected. I never got a bullseye rash because obviously I'd already had that when I was 14, and I think I obviously had some kind of immunity that that took care of the the Lyme disease. But I probably got some a co-infection, and I haven't had any labs on this, so I don't know what infections I've got, but. I did have a, 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 a reaction and I phoned my GP and um, I spoke to a nurse at the GP's office and, and they basically said, do you have a bullseye? And I said, no. Uh, and they said, oh, well, don't worry about it then. And we, uh, yeah. But also we know there's more than just, you mentioned that maybe you had an immunity the second time around for Lyme, but mm. Borrelia, there's so many different species and categories, right? So one of the things we've been learning a lot on this podcast recently is people harbor various types of Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi, Borrelia miyamotai, and there's many others, but it mm. seems to be from some research we've, we've heard from Dr. Alan McDonald on our podcast recently is that if you have Borrelia miyamotai and Borrelia burgdorferi together, that's a mm. really bad combination. It makes you even sicker, right? So that second tick bite could have infected you with another strain and co-infections and put you over the edge, leading yeah. up to your third pregnancy, causing your crash, right? But yeah. I- I do want to just hit the stage and then, and then I know Rachel is going to pick back up with some questions here that you were 39 years old and you got sick with your third child. And now you're, you're, you have, you have your third child. Thank God everything is okay. Right. She comes out a little blue, but everything is good. Now you're diagnosed with basically your, your sugar crazy and you eliminated mm. sugar and you're feeling better and things are good. And you think maybe that was it and you're healed. But in hindsight, yeah. I'm sure there was more to the picture, obviously. Right. So this is where I, if you can pick up there and then Rachel's mm-hmm. going to continue with you from this point. Yeah. So um, I did I did have this uh, relationship with sugar for a long time where I would not eat any for a while and then I would relapse and have lots of it and, and I would have these crashes and then I would feel really, really bad. Um, and also at the time, I was I was like an, uh, uh, a born again Christian with with the whole kind of sugar thing where I was going like, oh, sugar is really, really bad for everyone. So I was, I was really hard on my family as well. I was going, nobody should eat sugar. And they, and I was fighting everyone and I was fighting my own body and I was fighting myself. And, and, uh, and then obviously when I, when I couldn't resist it, I was, I would have these crashes and I would really have a, a lot and a lot of self-loathing. And then, but also at the time, because I was working as a research nurse, I knew how to research things. And I, I also started on the side um, doing a research project and, and studying for a, um, a master's so that I could do my own research. And part of that course was looking into uh, or, or deciding on whatever you wanted to look in yourself. So I started researching um, uh, low-carbohydrate diets and, and things like that. And I found all the things to match up with, with my symptoms. And, and, and I was trying to kind of carve out a path for myself to get healthy through my own studies. Uh, but also it was a very st- stressful time. And then my, my, um, my husband got a, j- a job uh, where he had to work um, in Stockholm. So he was away a lot. And we were, we were also 
um, obviously renovating the house and planning for the wedding and all that, or this was after the wedding, but we were still under a lot of stress. And um, and then, so I went on a, a second course for, for sugar addicts, which was actually run online from America. And, and during that time I started having more symptoms because I was I was under control with the sugar back then but I was still binge eating on on things like nuts and um and seed bread and things like that which was um yeah not helping me basically and during the second course uh in October 2019 my right arm overnight <laughs> it felt like it was overnight but it swelled up and it was really, really big and, and stiff. So I was like, my God, what's going on here? Um, so I went to my GP and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. They took all these labs and, and, and even back then, to f the first person I saw, the first doctor I saw, I said, this is something to do with my gut um, because I'm eating all these things. And, and when I eat, I can feel the the symptoms. So when when I would eat wheat, for example, I would feel like I was drunk, um, and and I had all these uh, symptoms, but I couldn't really control them. And I really, I kind of half knew what I needed to do, but I just couldn't get myself to do them. And then I was also then explaining this as being a sugar addict, and and kind of allowing me to 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 do them as well, which is um yeah counterintuitive but I felt like I was really out of control um yeah, and also I wanted to sorry to interrupt I wanted to yeah. jump back to something you said um pull a mat he loves to jump back and dive in deeper to things but um just the it was such a beautiful realization that you said um about being victim like a victim like you were victimizing yourself kind of all throughout your life leading up to mm -hmm. this and mm -hmm. you know it's almost setting the the blueprint to chronic illness I think that's something that's so critical for a lot of people is it's you know you're you're kind of setting up your life not that it's your fault to be clear it's not your fault that you were chronically ill but it seems like such a common thing with people that you're there's a pattern of chronic stress. There's, you know, mm -hmm. you're just putting your all into things, even though you don't feel well, you have all these projects and, and just, you know, the, I must've done this to myself kind of thing is, is just such a common, um, but I'm also wondering, was that something that contributed to you, to it taking so long for you to get a diagnosis because you were doubting yourself and victimizing mm -hmm. yourself? Um, and yes. did that, you know, hinder you getting a diagnosis. Yes, totally. Because I feel, especially from from my family, we've had this this underdog kind of um, attitude all our lives. There's no point in asking for help because we won't get it. That kind of attitude, which I've lived with for for a long time, and I've never really experienced having a voice or or, or expected anyone to really listen to me. And that's been, that's been, I think, my main, my main uh, obstacle to get past to actually get help. And, and, and I've, and also this self-reliance, yeah, I can't, I've always been thinking like, nobody's going to help me. It's just me against the world. And that's where I've been living for a long, long time. And it's only in the last couple of 
yeah maybe two to three years that I've I've realized that actually it's okay to ask for help and that is is a massive um, obstacle to get past and it's made a big difference and I'm still struggling with it because it's difficult but it's uh, mm. and also what I've realized from listening to all these podcasts as well is that it seems as though the people who have somebody else who can advocate for them are the ones who can do better quicker. So uh, I think I, I listened to somebody where where they said, oh, my mother did all the research and she looked into all these things for me. And and that when I listened to that, I was like, oh, wouldn't that be nice if somebody else fought my corner? Because when I was feeling at my worst, I just didn't. I mean, I, I got Richard Horowitz's book and it's a massive book and it's really complicated with, with lots of medical language. And I'm a nurse. I can understand most of it. But but it was with my brain not working. I was just reading it and not retaining anything. And it was it was really hard. And I, I remember asking my husband at the time, will you please read this for me and explain it to me? Because I don't understand it. And he was just we were in so much fighting and he just he wasn't in a space where he could actually help me which was really sad um because because I I'd, I'd blamed him for so much for so long that he wasn't kind of in a space where he he wanted to even help me um so yeah yeah also I have to interrupt again because in mm -hmm. the back of my mind when you said you were doing house renovations an immediate yeah. flag went up in my mind right so all along, mm -hmm. you're doing house renovations, and this is a, a slow process, mm -hmm. and you're getting sicker and sicker. You're doing the sugar detox that helps, and it sounds like you have some ups and downs of the sugar detoxes, right? So were you yeah. seeing any of the doctors where you just felt, or, or in your head, was it just, it's sugar, sugar is the cause, and when I, when I relapse with sugar and I eat sugar, I feel like crap, and then I do better, and I feel good, and then I relapse and I eat a ton of sugar, and I feel like crap, and then I do better, and I feel good. Was that your mindset that it was all sugar or were you seeing other doctors as well throughout this time period? No, I never saw a doctor. Uh, not until uh, my arm swelled up into in October 2019. Um, and when your arm swelled up in, in 2019 and you went to the doctor, it sounds like this didn't get better. It just continued to get worse your arm, right? So yeah. did you see other doctors? What type, what type of specialists and doctors did you see because of your arm? Was it just the one and you sort of got frustrated and gave up after not getting relief? Mm. No, well, the, the healthcare system in Sweden is, is, um, is quite different to America. So here we have more or less free healthcare. You pay a small amount, but you see but you basically just have your your doctor and you're told you, you can't really choose you can choose but but it's very limited choice um so i went to my gps and I, and when you're fairly young and you're fairly healthy then you get you always get to see an unqualified doctor the first time you come so so i had this a young woman and um, obviously she looked at me and I, I said I'm a nurse and she got all nervous because <laughs> oh my god <laughs> uh, here I am newly or I'm not even a qualified doctor uh, anyway she diagnosed my arm with a uh, probably a trapped nerve in the neck and she sent me uh, she wanted to send me for for a scan and I was kind of doubting this I was going this has got nothing to do with my neck um, this is I think it's connected to my guts and I told her so and she was like well let's go with my story first um and then 
she got sick herself so I never heard back from her so after a while I kind of went oh they're not getting back to me so I contacted them again and I got to see another unqualified doctor I think this one was actually qualified but she was very new and she ran loads of tests um and everything came back negative it was all I'm, I'm everything's all your labs are great you look great but when I was like yeah I, I everything looks great but I don't look great uh or at least I don't feel great. But also, uh, how, did, how did they reconcile that? Because I went through that as well. And because I was so cognitively impaired, I didn't challenge my doctors enough. And, and, and mm-hmm. that's something that I think a lot of us don't do. But when you, in your case, you had this swollen arm, it was very visible. It wasn't something that yeah. they could say is due to stress, right? Oh, you're, you're having anxiety because you're stressed out. Oh, you're, you know, it's not something they could easily write off to a psychological symptom like many people in the Lyme community. So when you're having these visible physical symptoms and all your mm. tests are coming back normal, what were your doctors offering you as a solution? Were they saying we need to refer you out to another specialist? Were they saying just give it time yeah. and it's going to go away? Because there's this clear discrepancy of your lab work and your presentation of symptoms, right? So what was yeah, the yeah. response you got at that point? Well, they were basically just scratching their heads. They sent me for all of these scans um, mainly looking for cancer, of course, because uh, because it's the right arm. They thought there was maybe something like a breast cancer with a lymph um, uh, problem. But, you know, my breast scan was clear and all the other things they did was it was all clear. So in the end, around Christmas, she she asked to refer me to uh, uh, somebody else. And then obviously Corona happened. Uh, so the pandemic kind of shut everything down and. Um, and then I was just waiting and I, and I was of the, I'm a, cause I'm a healthcare professional myself. And then I was, Oh, well, it's not that bad. I won't bother them. You know, they're probably busy right now. And I was, <laughs> I was just waiting for them to get back to me. And, and all the, all the while I was getting more symptoms. My, I was losing, losing feeling in my toes and, and fingers and all, and, and the brain fog was getting much worse. And, and um, but I was, I was kind of, I could still work and I could still do all the things that I needed to do in life more or less, but I was struggling, but I didn't really, I mean, my, my only, as my, my uh, doctors and what you just said as well, my, my only objective symptom was the arm swelling. Um, but also, in, you, sorry, yeah. to again. can you just give us, cause you mentioned you started to get new symptoms at this point, right? Corona hits, you're getting more symptoms, you're getting worse, obviously swollen arm. You had pain in your neck. You mentioned that you had in your toes and fingers, they would go numb and tingle as well. What Mm. other symptoms did you have, both psychological and physical? Did you have anxiety? Were you having depression symptoms? Were you having any kind of weird neurological symptoms or physical symptoms that you didn't discuss yet? Just to get the the broad picture of how sick you were at this time and and how your symptoms were developing. No, I think my main problem was I was really, really, really tired all the time. And and also just losing I was so cold so the winters are really cold here and but I as soon as I went outside I would lose feeling in my hands and my feet uh and and my they would go totally white especially my feet so I would always have these heated soles in my shoes to go to the stables with my kids and stuff um and we went on holiday to Israel in uh, February 2020, just before the world shut down. And it was the most miserable holiday I've ever been on because I just, my family was just like, why can't you come with us? Now I just, I haven't got the energy. And 
I would be walking around these markets, just dragging my feet along and, and trying to be cheerful with my family. And I just couldn't. Uh, and I was just going, what is wrong with me? <laughs> uh, but but I think I was just so inflamed, like generally inflamed in my body that um, I just couldn't cope. But I just didn't know back then what it was. So when I got back from there, I decided to to call my doctors again and then and just ask what's happening. And and they said they would get back to me and they didn't. And then my face swelled up. I put some a new face cream on my face and and then morning and morning after my face was just swollen like a big balloon. And uh, so I, I went back to my doctors and I got to see another unqualified doctor, a different one this time. And and she didn't think that the swelling in my face had anything to do with all the other symptoms that I was presenting with. But she said she just gave me some antihistamines and, and sent me on my way. And but when I was there, I said, look, nobody's got back to me about my other symptoms. Can you please ask them to? And she was, yes, of course, I will do that. And then I heard nothing for ages. So by that, by this time, I got I got I got really fed up with the, with the Swedish healthcare system, and I started looking around for other things. So I got in touch with a um, functional medicine doctor up in Stockholm, and I was started I was listening to a lot of um, podcasts, like the Diet Doctor uh, podcast, and all these things, which um, uh, which were all t- talking about functional medicine. And I was lo- I was researching and looking into it, and also I, I got in touch with the what's his name, um, Hyman. Uh, yeah Mark, Mark Hyman I was reading his book as well and uh, and there was all these tests that you could take and all these different things that could be wrong with you so I, I signed up with that but they, they had a massive queue so I didn't get an appointment until June um, so I was waiting for this appointment and obviously it was very expensive and for me to spend 30,000 Swedish krona which is about 3,000 pounds I don't know how many dollars that is but um was, was a massive thing but but then I was thinking god it's corona we can't go anywhere anyway so I might as well spend my spend my holiday money on trying to get better um uh, but and also then while I was waiting for this appointment uh I did contact my doctor again and finally I got to see my house doctor which I'd never in my life met before because I'd always been very healthy and this was a a doctor who was fairly close to retirement and she when she saw my symptoms and the fact that nobody had got back to me uh, and that my arm was so swollen she panicked she went oh my god what how have we missed this and she was probably a bit scared of being sued I don't know um, so she sent me for another round of of cancer um, cancer scare but we have this unit called ESCU in Sweden which is the uh, something like unified cancer uh, investigation clinic or something like that uh, where they they get all the different specialities in and they look at the case as, as slightly from a, a, a bigger picture so then I finally got to see somebody and uh, they, again, a newly qualified doctor, but still they, they spent an hour with me and, uh, and I got to talk and tell them all about all my symptoms and my own, because I was, I was researching things like oxalate at the time. And I was thinking maybe that said something to do with it. And I was telling them all these ideas that I had of what it could be. And, uh, and they were like, oh, well, that's great, but 
we're going to do our thing first and then we'll see. So then they'd sent me through, through the whole kind of spiral again with all the MR and the CT and they found, this time they found something on my liver, which they then looked back at, but then realized it was nothing to operate on. In hindsight, I think it's probably parasitic, uh, but nobody knows anything about that here. So they just let it go. Um, How did you feel like you're a healthcare professional? How did you feel going from doctor to doctor to doctor? And because it's just so similar to so many of our journeys that they didn't put any of these puzzle pieces together. They're looking at one thing at a time and you're in the healthcare field. I mean, I know I, I, I feel really saddened. And I, and I felt this the whole time I've worked as a nurse as well. I feel really saddened about the how we we have specialized our bodies and and cut it up in so many different pieces that nobody sees the whole thing anymore, and that that really saddens me. And that's why I still couldn't I, I stopped working as a nurse because I, I couldn't really I didn't want to be part of that system anymore. I I just I spent so much of my time working as a nurse fighting with other wards about whose patient we had in front of us uh, because oh no this patient doesn't belong to gyne because uh we've got because she's got a uh, something something on her leg or so and that's like nobody sees the big picture anymore and that's and I also would during the time i was doing my um my masters and in the in the nursing course they're all thinking about this. They're going, oh, we've got to unify. We've got to do this. And we've got to see the whole person. We've got to see, we've got to let the patient be part of it and, and, and be a co-creator of the, the care that we give. And that's, it's all very nice, but we're not doing it. <laughs> uh, but, but I'm hoping because it's in the course that we're getting there at some point in the future, we're going to get there. But but it's not happening at the moment. So it was frustrating. And also I felt that nobody was listening to me. Every time, every new doctor I would meet, I would say, this is something to do with my gut. I know that it starts in my gut because when I eat something, it affects me. I can physically feel it pretty much straight away after I've eaten it, I can feel the reaction in my body and nobody would listen to me. And I was, I felt I was just banging my head against the wall the whole time. And your um, intuition was right the whole time. It's like your intuition was spot on and, and none of these doctors could see it. And to Matt's point, I think it's like, you know, with the Lyme community, we all have to be such advocates for ourselves when we are mm-hmm. so sick and yeah. it's just, it's infuriating, but I just yeah. relate so much to what you're saying. I'm sure Matt does as well. Mm. Yeah, I do. And, and, and also one of the things that's just jumping out at me is we learned recently that Yale University did a study and 20%, just under 19 point something percent of acute Lyme disease patients had liver dysfunction. And mm-hmm. then now they're starting to study the livers of chronic Lyme patients and they're realizing their livers are completely shot, right? Which we kind of knew, we know now as chronic Lyme patients because we know detoxing and liver and we start to learn these types of things, but they're proving this at universities and at the academic level. So when you presented with liver issues, I mean, they have done studies. So Dr. McDonald, who we interviewed on this podcast, partnered with, with Yale University, they autopsied many, 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 many chronic Lyme livers. And mm-hmm. all of them, whether it was inflammation or whether it was a nodule, whatever it was in the liver that sparked some sort of curiosity, if they did a biopsy of it, every single one of those biopsies had Lyme spirochetes in the liver. 
And that was contributing to the liver issues, right? And then they would find parasites as well. They would find biofilm. They would find all these other things in the liver biopsy. So I'm hearing this. All of your symptoms are consistent with tick-borne illness and Lyme disease. And yet we have studies that show the, the liver connection to Lyme. Nobody's thinking this. And they're just saying, oh, the liver seems to be off. Oh, but you know what? It's okay. Just keep going on. You're really sick, but it's all right. right? I mean, I feel like they missed the boat so many times with your symptoms at so many stages of your progression of Lyme disease. And it's really frustrating to hear that because there are studies, there are people out there doing brilliant work to help the community, but the information is not being properly disseminated throughout mm -hmm. the world to have doctors be better informed to make the connection between Lyme, tick-borne illness, and a lot of these little nuanced things like liver dysfunction, right? So yeah. I mean, I just wanted to throw that out there because again, I'm hearing these things and we're hearing it build up and it's like, I'm thinking Lyme disease. I know Rachel's thinking Lyme disease and now you obviously know Lyme disease, right? But it took yeah. you way, far too long to get properly diagnosed. So I yeah. apologize and I digress from my little rant, but it's just frustrating hearing this. And I feel, feel very sorry that you had to suffer for so long before getting a diagnosis. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, the thing is, I can't feel any animosity against these people because they don't know any better and I didn't know any better back then I just I just didn't know and if I'd known I obviously would have spoken up but I didn't and I'm a healthcare professional I've got to feel a little bit defensive as well um, because I think everyone's trying their hardest to help me they were trying the hardest to help me I don't it's frustrating of course but we can't know things we don't know so that's why we need to do things like you, what you're doing with the Tick Booth Camp and, and spreading the word because it's not going to fly into people's ears uh, or eyes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there I was. Um, and, and then finally, so I got to, to see my uh, functional medicine doctor up in Stockholm. And he was the first person who then, uh, who, who kind of went, oh, but you had a ring mark, ring shaped mark on your leg when you were fourteen. Could that have something to do with it? We'll do we'll do a, a Borrelia test as well. And um, but these tests up in Stockholm, they would take five weeks to get back. And by this time, I was connected to the the, the cancer clinic that that was um, I was talking about before. And and um, I had. Um, I got to go back and and speak to an actual doctor who'd been a specialist for quite some time. Um, finally, like so, this was in the middle of the summer, and and I so I told him, and and I knew him a little bit from working on a different ward. We'd worked together, so he kind of knew me as well, which made made him give me maybe a little bit more time. Um, and and so I said, oh, this functional medicine guy in Stockholm, he thinks maybe that there's Borrelia. And he was like, oh, well, well let's us do a, a test as well. And I got it back in two days. And he called me back and he said, look, I need to put you on antibiotics. And and that's the first time I, oh, okay. So what is this thing, Borrelia? I've never really. So also, I'm going to interrupt again, because this is really powerful. You are a brilliant, smart woman who is a trained nurse who went through a master's program, who has a ton of connections in the field. And you were really sick at 39. You finally get diagnosed at 46. It took you approximately seven years to get a diagnosis with your background and your connections and your intelligence, right? Mm. And not only that, once you get a proper diagnosis, you're like, what's Lyme disease? And that's, yeah. that's not an indication of you. It just shows how flawed we are as a society to not have the awareness we need because you are a brilliant woman, right? So I just mm. want to highlight that this is something that 
you had a lot of things in your favor and it still took you so long to get a diagnosis. Now you get the diagnosis and you're like, what's that mean? So, you know, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but walk us through when you got the diagnosis, you ask what's Lyme disease and what your next steps were. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd heard of it before as a colleague at work whose son had had Lyme disease and he was really had weird symptoms and I hadn't that was kind of all you'd heard was see people seem to get really weird symptoms and and that but that's all I knew so but then I started kind of researching and uh, so I, I looked at the guidelines here in Sweden which was two weeks of doxycycline um, and then you're cured two weeks of doxycycline yeah not uh, happening with chronic Lyme disease I'm sorry no, it's not happening no, I know and so, and then I looked at, because I, obviously I lived in, in London for a long time, so I looked at the guidelines there and they said, oh, well, well, a month to six weeks seemed to be at the minimum. So I, didn't, so I phoned up my doctor again and I said, look, in England, that's what they're doing. Can, can I have a bit more? <laughs> and he was, he was, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's a surgeon. So he was like, oh yeah, go on, have, have, have more than, uh, and then after the, the, the second time when I phoned back and I said, oh, I've, I've stopped taking the antibiotics. And as soon as I stop, I feel worse again. Can I have another course? And he went, oh, all right then. And then, but, but I'm going to have to refer you now to, to infections clinic because this is obviously not cancer. So then, but, but it was also, this is happening in the middle of the summer of 2020. So it was uh, during the, the worst of the pandemic uh, where we didn't have any vaccines or anything, so everyone's still panicking, and um, and so so he he got me a referral, but he sent it kind of like a, a bit of a friend referral because I was a nurse, and and so I got to come and see a doctor in a closed down clinic in the middle of the summer who just kept come back from the COVID ward, and she was all sweaty from the COVID patients and everything, and she and she basically thought that all this girl wants is a referral to to skin clinic to see if I because I'd I'd found I'd started looking at at articles and downloading things and and I'd found that um what's it called ACA um uh, that's when your when your skin is turning blue right yeah that's yeah. the thing I just can't remember <laughs> exactly what dermatitis or something that's it think, right? yeah that that's it mm-hmm so I'd found an article, I found a couple of articles and I wanted to show that dose. Um, and so I, and I also downloaded uh, Richard Horowitz's The Symptoms That You Check. And I was like, basically, the MSIDS questionnaire, correct? The MSIDS questionnaire, yeah. And I was going, this is, this is me. This is all me. And, and I was, I was and really- this is post-treatment, correct? This is after antibiotics. Uh, it was during antibiotics that I was kind of, looking at all these things and I, and I started kind of clicking oh my god this is so me this is this is all my symptoms and and this explains everything and I was I felt really oh I found I found a solution I know what to do now and then oh, so oh, sorry, I'm gonna interrupt again I'm sorry just for our listeners because we've never we have never talked about acrodermatitis ACA on this podcast all right I just want to and you know better obviously but I believe that that's a skin condition but it's caused by Lyme disease, but not what we here in the States know as Borrelia burgdorferi or even Borrelia miyamotai, which you talked about already on this podcast. I think it's the Borrelia abzeli. I'm yeah. probably saying it wrong. So it's another type of Lyme disease, right? So there's many yeah. different types. A specific type of Lyme disease causes a skin, a skin condition, which is an indication of a systemic 
Lyme infection, right? Is that what your thoughts were? I just want to make sure I understand yeah. what that yeah, yeah. is so our listeners have a context to what ACA is. No, that's perfect. Yes. Um, so it's it's a strain of Borrelia, which is very common in Europe, which I also, and I got this from uh, from the Richard Horowitz book, and I was going, oh, but that makes sense. And obviously, I live in Europe, so that would make sense to me. Uh, and then my symptoms were, my, my hand was turning blue, uh, and but because I, I'd already had the um, uh, antibiotic treatment, by the time I got to see the doctor, my hand was actually back to normal. It wasn't blue anymore, but I had pictures of it when it was blue, but they weren't really that interested in those pictures. And uh, obviously this meeting that I had with the, uh, with the doctor from uh, infections clinic was very short and she was rushed and she didn't really have time to look at all the things that I'd researched and I'd brought with me. Um, and after this, I felt after this meeting, she said, oh, I'm going to do your referral, but now I've got to run. And I just felt so dejected. I felt, but, 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 <laughs> but I have all this, this information that I want to share with you. And she was just not in a state where she could take this in at all, uh, which I understand in hindsight. But at the time, it was really difficult because also I'm going to again interrupt. I think you're being too kind. You're I think you are way too nice and you're way too kind. And I want to highlight here that this doctor didn't do you justice because it's an infectious disease specialist. And here in the States, infectious disease specialists are don't do well with Lyme disease either. But that's mm -hmm. their job. Lyme disease is an infectious disease and they are the special they're a special doctor that's supposed to help you with Lyme disease. And they fail more times than not when dealing with chronic Lyme patients or persistent Lyme patients. And you were failed as well. So not only was this doctor, was she stressed and short on time, but she also told you that there's no such thing as persistent Lyme and the treatment you received should have easily killed off the brilliant in your body three times over and get out of here, basically go to the skin doctor, right? So I, yeah. I think this doctor probably did more harm than good. So I just want to interject with my opinion and see what your thoughts are to my, my statements. No, I agreed 100% because I did feel really dejected leaving there going, but I am an intelligent person. There's, there's obviously science out there that's, that's supporting this. And, and I looked at the, um, the website uh, where there's a website you have in America, which I can't remember the name of now. Is it uh, Islands? Yes, yeah. which I looked at and, and all those... Um, those uh, research articles that support Lyme, that Lyme, persistent Lyme exists and all those things, which I started to download because obviously I have, um, as a research coordinator or research nurse, I have access to these, to PubMed articles and things. So um, I had all this research with me that I wanted to share and I wanted to have, I, what, what I've always wanted was somebody to spar with because I can help myself. I don't need them to tell me what to do. And the only thing that what they were doing was telling me all the wrong things to do. But anyway, so they, she, 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 <laughs> she referred. I'm not a fan of this doctor. You're, you're too kind is what I'm going to say again. We can move on. I, I know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going too much with this one, but I do want to add. Yeah. So the whole, this whole eyelids component, we actually have a page on our website. If you go to tickbootcamp.com, there's a section called chronic Lyme proof on our website and Lyme mm. persists. There's over 700 peer-reviewed articles that were yeah. done in a scientific in environment through universities 
that prove Lyme disease persists beyond the traditional antibiotic treatment. So again, over 700 peer-reviewed scientific articles that prove the persistence of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. So how do you how do you question that? So when you have a doctor saying you're cured from a short course of doxycycline, and then there's this on the other side from peers in the scientific community, just blows my mind. And I'll, I'll leave it there again, and you can go on with your um your, your next steps. But this doctor just infuriates me. Uh, also, and you're being way too kind. So anyway, yeah, please, but please this continue. Is, this, this was obviously my pattern of, of um, not having a voice because I just felt that it wasn't my place. Well, I, I'll just listen to, to the good doctor. But anyway, in my, in my body, this was growing. This, this frustration was obviously growing as well. So, but, but I was then referred to the skin clinic and I did a biopsy on my arm but they failed to look for Borrelia, even though I mentioned, can you please look for Borrelia? They didn't. So but, they biopsied your skin. You asked yeah. for an analysis for Lyme disease and they did not. They, de yeah. they denied your request. Mm. Or they, they missed it or whatever. But they, it, it came back with what they couldn't, they couldn't kind of say that it wasn't Borrelia, but they couldn't also say that it was. So, and, but, this is with really... a positive test result. You already had a positive Lyme test, blood test. Yeah, yeah. And also I brought, I brought the ACA article to show mm -hmm. my, my skin doctor and she kind of just glanced at it and went, mm, yeah, it doesn't look like it. But that's because I'd already had the antibiotics, which made all the blue color go away. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, and then, so they wanted me back for, a, for another biopsy. Um, and I went through one of the most humiliating exams of my life where they basically, they called me up, I think the day before or on the same day that this was happening and said, can you come down to the clinic? We've got a, a team of, of skin specialists from all over the world that come and they want to do like a, a conference uh, examination of you. So, okay. Uh, I had to tell my employer that I, I need to go. And luckily I work in the hospital, so it was quite close for me to go there. But so I went there, I had to sit undressed, my, my everything undressed on the top part of my body uh, in a cold room. And I was waiting. And then suddenly this, these five doctors would burst in. They wouldn't even really kind of say hello to you. And they would start prodding you and lifting your arm and pulling and, and looking. And then, and then they would just talk to each other on top of you and not even, some of them would ask you a question and then they would just disappear. And then another team of five doctors would come in and that happened three times. And I'm a nurse and I, I just, I'm just thinking, this is just, this is like cattle. I feel like a, a, an animal being prodded and I, I, I almost cried really. And it's quite emotional even telling the story now. And, but, but the good thing that came out of that was that somebody, somebody, an Italian doctor, thought that it was a fasciitis, uh, which is an inflammation of the fascia, which is the, the um, connective tissue in, in your body. But, but fascia is so much more than that. It's kind of everywhere in the body. Um, and it's, it's all the collagen in your body and it's all the uh, interstitial fluid as well. That's also part of fascia. And if that's inflamed, that's not good. Um, but the treatment that they offered me then was uh, steroids. 
and they wanted also to to put me on a a um, chemotherapy, uh, which was called something or other, methotrexate. I don't know what it's called in English. Um, and so I reached, researched these two drugs and basically said, don't take these if you've got an infection. And I said, well, I'm not taking these two drugs because I have an infection. And, um, and they were just, oh, okay, well, if, if you don't want the treatment that we're offering, then we can't really offer you anything else. Okay, so where am I now then? Uh, oh, you're on your own, basically. Um, but it's really heartbreaking to hear that also because it's it's just it's the experience of so many people in the Lyme community you just feel so let down by the healthcare mm. system and it's the fact that it's happening across the globe and you know you leave feeling like you're on your own which is the absolute worst feeling when you're yeah. dealing with a chronic illness so I'm so sorry you had to go through that but I'm really proud of myself for actually just saying no to these things as well, because I could have easily just gone, oh, yeah, well, let's try this. But but having read Richard Horowitz's book and also, even though I didn't retain much of the information in it, I, it gave me the strength to actually say no. And also what, what I found from Richard Horowitz was something called drunk's disease or... Um, uh, oh. Yeah. Auto brewery. Auto brewery syndrome. Yeah. Auto brewery syndrome. Yeah. Which is is so much. Uh, I was really relieved when I found that, and I started also re researching that. And so it's basically a Japanese or, or Chinese man or something who ate who had cherries, and and then he had a really high level of blood alcohol from eating cherries. And basically, what they realized then was that the gut bacteria was breaking down the cherries and turning it into alcohol in his guts. Uh, and that's, and I was just like, well, that's what's happening to me. If I have sugar, I feel like I've, I've had alcohol. So that's obviously something that's going on in my gut. And when I was telling my doctors this, they were just shaking their heads and going, she's crazy. Um, but also I think part of this, I know I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to be kind to the doctors <laughs> and I know you, you won't, you don't really want me to, but, I think part of this was just not having the voice to speak up for myself and actually believing in myself enough to kind of go, well, hang on, you need to listen to me now. Um, so that's grown with time. Hmm. But so after yeah. this whole failed thing with your with your skin and the biopsy mm -hmm. and then wanting to put you on chemotherapy and, and steroids, you're like, no way, I'm not doing that. And they said, all right, you're on uh, your own. What well, they, next? they still well, sick, right? yeah, they referred me back to infections clinic and I did have another uh, encounter with the first doctor that distressed one that I met and she actually apologized. She said, look, I'm really, really sorry for, for our meeting the last time. I understand that you didn't feel seen or heard, which is great. Uh, but she and she said, "Oh, what I'd like you to do is that I'd like you to refer you to, to North Shopping, which is our, our uh, twin town here. Where, where we have our Borrelia specialist. Uh, and this is a woman who's written, um, she's written some research articles on, on Borrelia and she's our local specialist. Um, and uh, so I was referred to her and I got to see her. And this is then about the beginning of 2021, I guess. 
I got to see her and um and by then I'd listened to quite a few of the tick boot bootcamp um podcasts and I was feeling a little bit stronger in myself and and just feel hearing so many other people going through the same thing of not being believed and and not being seen and heard it made me stronger even though in my body I was incredibly weak <laughs> and uh, and but this woman that I saw she was and I also knew her from my from my work so she knew me as as somebody who was competent and 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 could give her advice about how to run a research study and everything like that so so she, so we were more like she didn't look at me solely as a patient and solely as somebody who's a bit crazy so she i think she could hear me on a different level um and but still she maintained that that the borrelia could not be a problem because i'd had so such a high dose of antibiotics that that it just couldn't be and she maintained that and and I by then I'd also listened to the episode uh that you had on um on intestinal worms and uh it was the uh Californian woman who's brilliant uh Kristen Kristenanos I think her name is and and that's made me think ooh but maybe that's what's happening maybe I've got some so because i think now in hindsight what happened when i had when i had the the um antibiotics in the summer of 2020 it knocked out all my good flora as well and it gave it gave the parasites and the uh were the intestinal worms a free run so by the time christmas came around i was really really sick um but at the time also i ordered um the unlocking lime book which I, i i thought was so much more accessible and also because of richard horowitz's his um treatments were so far away from from sweden and so far away from from anything that i could even look at i think the dr rawls book was so much more accessible and i was thinking hey this is this is something i can do and and i it, what really resonated with me was the pot boiling boiling over thing where yeah. where it's not just the borrelia it's everything in my life uh, that's adding to the stress uh, and then i also read another really amazing book called um solving the autoimmune puzzle by <laughs> um oh it's up there somewhere Yeah, I've heard of that one. I can't remember the author, but also I just want to acknowledge you for being like you're so intelligent and resourceful and nothing was being given to you for help in your country and you so bravely continued to search until you found resources. It's just it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been questioned so many times and it's really tough and also being questioned I was being questioned by everyone my my whole family were, were against me even from the I think from the when I started kind of doing the thing with sugar they they turned against me because because I was probably really quite horrible to them as well and I I own that very much <laughs> uh because I was desperate and and you I just didn't know sick. what was I was yeah I was I didn't know what was going on in my body and I was trying to heal myself 
and I was really angry with everyone and nobody was listening. I felt that nobody was listening to me. Um, so I, and I was, so I was fighting my own body. I was fighting my family and I was fight, fighting the healthcare system. I was fighting everyone and it was yeah. a tough time. Did they, uh, did they recognize like when you told, uh, were you still with your husband when you found out you had Lyme, when you got a diagnosis and how did he react to that? And your kids, like, did they believe in it? Did they believe you? that that could be causing these problems? These yeah, in, in some ways, I think they did. But then because I'd been so, I'd been so confused for so long about so many things, I think they just didn't really, I don't, I, I think they just thought, oh, this is another, it's another thing that she's looking at now. And also it's difficult when the healthcare system was saying, no, it's all in your head. It, um yeah it's difficult it was difficult and I don't know I, I can't really speak for them but I think getting some kind of diagnosis was obviously a big relief but then when you start reading about Lyme disease and there's so many different ways of treating it and what is the right way and I was really panicking back then and and when I asked my husband can you please help me to to understand this he didn't want to or he didn't feel like he could I'm not sure um, and I understand that now because I was very aggressive but I was I was sick and I was desperate um, but 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 also I think mainly the tick boot camp and also the this other pod uh, um, uh, the better health guy pod were were kind of fueling me and and helping me to 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 start believing in myself and, and actually starting to believe that I knew better I didn't want I didn't need to follow these these people's advice because there are doctors out there who who actually have had Lyme themselves and have cured themselves this is possible and that I would I would never have known about Dr. Rawls if I had if it hadn't been for Tick Booth Camp. So I'm so grateful, uh, and also Dr. Horowitz and and all these these people that that are helping so many people that they really buoyed me and helped me and 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 gave me the the strength to carry on. So, and and so to believe what, in myself. I'm sorry to interrupt. What other <laughs> treatments did you end up trying? You you mentioned the fascia. Um, and then uh, I think you mentioned herbs, maybe in your questionnaire. Yeah, like what, what actually, other treatments? actually, the first thing when when I got the Dr. Rawls book, Unlocking Lyme, I also uh, started reading the Healing Lyme book by um, you probably know quickly. Um, There's so many. Yeah, uh, what's his name? I can't find it there. Anyway. Um, oh, that, I'm that sorry, Buner. Yeah. I think Rachel, yeah. right? Stephen Buner. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I started reading that one as well, and it it all resonated with me, and I understand my symptoms. I connected to what they were saying, and it made sense to me, which made which made it all clearer. But obviously, you know, Matt, when or you probably know as well, Rachel, when you haven't got your brain fully there and you can't retain what you're reading, it just makes it so much more difficult. And that's that's where I, I realized that if you just have somebody else who can advocate for you as well and help you to believe in you and understand, then it's much, much easier. But of, but obviously I was in that state where I, I was just going, it's just me against the world. Um, and I'm just going to have to do this on my own. 
so that's probably why it took a lot longer. And I think in one in one episode, which made me laugh a little bit, I think Richard asked the question, do you think you would have healed quicker if you'd been a little bit more coachable? <laughs> and that really resonated with me because I was totally going my own way, even with, with lots of other doctors that were actually genuinely trying to help me. I felt that I couldn't really trust them. And I was doing a lot of things that probably didn't help me at the time, but never mind. It was a journey I had to take. Um, but so we are now at 2021. And um, I had the meeting with this uh, second opinion doctor. And um, she didn't kind of believe that any of the things that I was talking about were true when it comes to Lyme. But she did see that I was really sick. And because I'd lost a lot of weight. So at the time I was down to about 50 kilos and uh, my, my normal weight was always since I was about 18, 19, I was always 62. So I was really skinny and I had no energy whatsoever. And she saw that. So she, she kind of, she gave me sick note for a month um, for, for um, exhaustion, basically. So I, I was uh, relieved from, uh, released from work for a month which gave me a chance to kind of catch up and to get all my books. And I actually, what I did for the first of this week, I booked into a hotel in the middle of nowhere and I brought my books and my yoga mat and everything. And I just researched and, and read. And, and then I took a, a walk down to the water and I laid on a jetty. This was March. It was freezing cold. So I had all my clothes on uh, and I was just lying there and trying to listen to my body and trying to listen what my body was telling me. And, and I was reading also another brilliant book, which is, um, is a woman who cured herself from uh, MS, Wall, The Walls Protocol. Uh, that book I was reading as well. And, and it was all these doctors who were basically curing themselves from supposedly in, incurable diseases with the help of, of nutrition and, and stress relieving and all these things and it's it just so resonated with me and so I started like clawing my my own way back to life uh, by all these books that were helping me and and the the herbals I started a course of herbals the Dr. Rawls uh, vital plan I ordered one load and I tried it in uh, in November to, of 2020 and after about two or three weeks, I actually started to feel a difference. And, uh, and this was a real leap of faith for me because I'm, I'm a nurse. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, everything should be, it should be um, proven scientifically. And, but, but the Dr. Rawls book, he explained it so well. And there is the science and like, I, there is science. So I, it wasn't like a blind leap of faith, but, but even so going from never taking tablets at all to taking four in the morning and <laughs> or whatever it was 12 12 tablets in the morning and 12 tablets in the evening was a big thing but I started feeling better so I was thinking god something's happening here uh, but then they ran out and they were horribly expensive and obviously we have to pay the tax and and the all that thing so so Mm, I've got. I thought I've got to find something equivalent here in Sweden, 
so I found a naturopath and I went to see her and she she prescribed me pretty much the herbs that I then like much much later ended up taking and I started taking them um, just before Christmas and I got horribly horribly ill much much worse and I was thinking oh but it must be because it's alcohol in this and I had all these because basically she didn't she muscle tested me and she put crystals all over my body and then and she prescribed these herbs and I was going this is crazy this can't be true I just couldn't believe in it because I was a nurse and I was trained in the classical um it just didn't make sense to me and she I don't think she explained it what that it would get worse before it got better I didn't get that, mm-hmm. that and even yeah. yeah and even if if she did say that I just didn't hear it um so I started taking them and then I stopped so around New Year's I was really 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 sick and obviously I'd, I'd eaten things around Christmas that I wasn't supposed to and I was blaming that mainly but on New Year's Day I couldn't get out of bed I was so dizzy and my whole body was burning my hands, both, both my arms. I, I, I can only explain it as, as I felt that somebody was washing the inside of my body with, um, with um, what do you call it? Um, oh, disinfectant. And it was just burning. Everything was burning. And I just felt so, so ill. And um, so I, I thought, right I've got to do something so I started then I got my I got an excel sheet out and I started writing down everything I ate everything I put in my body and I ordered another I ordered three months worth of of Dr. Rawls's herbs and and I start I started thinking like now I'm I'm taking charge of this and then um, so that's where it started. I'm, I'm jumping back and forth a bit. So the timeline here is a bit out. Uh, but and then and then I got my sick note in March uh, where I could kind of really go into the research. And, and I was taking all the herbs. And um, yeah, and that was the turning point. And then I started to, to slowly claw my way back into, into life again. Um, so and also the, the three months of the restore kit, I think you also ordered the gut revival kit. You told us offline, right? right? So you you yeah. were using Dr. Rolls's restore kit for chronic Lyme and, and yeah. rebuilding of your system and mm. the gut revival kit, which is critical, especially after antibiotics to restore your gut health, which we know is very yeah. connected to your immune health. So I think you did that for three months, correct? Yeah, that's right. Or, or four maybe because I started with quite a low dose. Yeah. And that and then, rebounded you back pretty well. And that was the beginning, you feel, of your, your yeah. climb back to health. Mm. And during my sick leave as well, I found out about uh, Dr. Jay Davidson. And I had a consult with them. Um, you, can, you can call them up and have a free consult uh, to see if they can work with you. But obviously, for me, it was, it was very difficult because, A, um, I'm so far away. So it would have had to be conference calls. And I, there was no way I could spend $100,000. Um, just not in my world so but what they did was just uh, they they said uh, ordered the the foundation protocol and 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 try that so when the Dr. Rawls herbs finished then I went over to the Dr. J. Davidson's foundational protocol which has also got a, 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 a I think it's called digestive mover or something that you start with because I had so much constipation and that was that was a really big thing 
now I understand because now I can connect it straight away. Oh, I'm, I'm a bit constipated. That's why my brain's not working. <laughs> uh, but back then I just didn't, I didn't know. Um, also, were so, these Cellcore products that you were yeah. now working with? Is that what they were? Yeah, not the Cellcore. It's called oh, like, oh, micro micro formulas. Yeah, micro formulas. Yeah, because uh, we don't have Cellcore doctors here, as far as I know. We might have now, but I looked around and there was you died. You either had to work with somebody in America or or um, or just ordered the the online stuff that you could get. And again, this was a a huge investment for me because obviously it is. It's like, I don't have that amount money really and um it's all out of pocket but but it, i could start to feel a shift in my health and and then i resonated um a reason sorry that if you don't have your health what do you have and what what are you going to do with money if you don't have your health um so this is beginning of 21 and this is still during the corona pandemic and then what happened was the the, the whole vaccine uh, thing was rolled out and so my dad who uh, who's been a rock for us with with helping he was a carpenter and uh he was helping us with all the renovation of our house and everything but he was he's not he wasn't old but he was starting to get really tired and he he was going, oh, this is going to be my last project. And then we'd do another project and he would go, this is definitely going to be my last project. <laughs> but um, uh, he had the first vaccine and, uh, and he had really horrible digestive symptoms after. So everything would just go straight through. And um, so he had the opposite of me. Um, and then around May, I think, of 2021, he had the second jab. And after that, he just didn't recover. And and I was and I was seeing his symptoms and comparing them a little bit to mine. They weren't the same, but very similar in some ways. Uh, and he got really ill. So and then he was going in and out of hospital and and getting worse and worse. And and I, and this was obviously a really stressful time for me as well. Um, but just seeing his journey woke me up a little bit as well to what was going on in my own body. So I was I I made the conscious choice of not having the jab, and I th I think obviously some Lyme patients can have it and some can't, and I don't know what it was that triggered my dad dad's illness, but but it was definitely something in the jab that set, set something else off in his body. Um. Also, then, real, real quick about that. So we told, we hinted at your 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 house construction, right? And now this has mm. been going on for quite a while. Do you think that while your dad and was helping with your construction at your home and you're living in his home, that possibly you're being exposed to mold and toxins and heavy metals, and that was having an impact on your health, causing you to get you know worse and then feel a little better, where and your body was constantly fighting it off, and maybe it was impacting your father's health as well, because we know older homes, remodeling, there's going to be mold, there's going to be toxins, there's going to be things that are not good for the human body to breathe in or come into contact with. You know, have you, have you thought about that looking back? Yes, definitely. Yeah. When I know that when we did our bathroom, uh, we found a really big black mold uh, part where there's where there had been a leak from the from the ceiling 
And we also had very similar symptoms that were, we, our eyes and noses would run. Um, and I think that's that's definitely connected to mold. And also I have, my dad never had this, but I had this um, smell of smoke. So I would, I would go, is somebody smoking here? Is somebody smoking it? And it would only be me who smelled it. So, and then I, I, when I was in the Lyme community, I, I posted this on, on one of the Lyme and, and I got lots and lots of replies going, yes, I get that as well. And I've said, phew, it's not just me. <laughs> um, so so I, could, I, I think now I connect that to mold because also where I work at the moment, there's been an issue with mold and the people who worked there previously were moved out because lots of people got sick and they, they did a, a renovation and they, they did san, uh, sanitation for mold. And, um, but then there was another water leak and um, there's lots of people at my work who have very weird symptoms. Nobody's connected it to mold apart from me. And I've told my my employers and I said they're going to look into it, but nothing's really happened yet. But I've, I've now elected to work from home as much as possible. But I don't know, this might be mold here as well. So, <laughs> uh, But I feel much better if I work from home anyway, because as soon as I turn up at my work, I get the smell of smoke in my nose and I, I kind of, I know, but uh, yeah, we digress. But yes, I think that's that's definitely what happened. With, in my dad's case, they they found asbestos in his lungs because he's been working um, with that in the in the fifties and sixties. Um, so they attributed his quick demise to the asbestos, even though it was in his lungs and on, on all the scans, it was encapsulated and probably didn't actually give him that much grief. Um, but that's that's what they said was his the, his cause of death anyway, because he got lung cancer. But he he died really, really, really quickly. So he, he was Sorry. he was. Yeah, no, he was very he was fairly healthy in May before he had the jabs and he was dead in September. So it was it was a big shock and it was it happened so quickly and and also it was very very difficult for me as a nurse to to witness how he was treated in the hospital and and it was yeah it was a difficult time because I was really more of his nurse than his his um daughter at the time when we were in hospital um how did this affect you personally, that your father getting sick from the vaccine, then getting lung cancer and passing so quickly? I mean, that emotional stress we know plays a huge role in your immune health and obviously, you know, it correlates to your physical health with Lyme disease. So how are you managing everything going on in your father's passing with your own health at this time at the end of 2021? Mm, it was tough. It was it was really, really tough. Um, but also, I think I was... I was healing at the time and I was doing the right things. And, but obviously I did, I, I really, cause what I did was I signed up for a grief group at the, at the church, which it was, a, and, and going through all these stages of, of uh, my dad's death realized, I realized a year later, just how traumatic it was for me and just how difficult it was at the time. And, it was also during that time that me and me and my husband decided that we were going to separate and, and we were telling the kids that we weren't going to be together anymore. And 
all of this was happening at the same time. And and also my dad, uh, my husband is a comedian. And the, the week that my dad died, he was putting on this massive comedy festival in our town. <laughs> so it was, it was just everything was happening at the same time. And he was going, oh, I, he, so he obviously loved, loved my dad very dearly as well. And it was a tough time for my husband as well to be putting on a comedy festival at the same time as, as his 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 dad-in-law is, is lying in hospital dying so it was it was stressful really really stressful um and uh, yeah um but but also I felt that I was I was in a space of healing and, and also I'd read up on on vitamin c for example and how how that could help and I was I was asking the doctors can we just stop the antibiotics and give him vitamin c instead because I don't think I think this is viral the antibiotics isn't they're not going to help him um and and he needs he needs nourishment and because he wasn't drinking anything as well he he was so like his fascia was he was swelling up everywhere and and I yeah in hindsight now that I know so much more I feel that if I if I could have just taken him out of hospital and treated him myself he might have still lived but I can't I can't keep beating myself up about this so I've I've just had to to kind of let that go and and also my dad said to me we because we, we did from from him getting his his so-called death sentence um we had about a month and he talked we talked a little bit even though he was losing his mind quite a bit then he was still saying that you know I'm 74 I've had a good life it's okay and and I was with him when he died and I was I was I was sitting there going dad it's okay I, I'll be all right because I'm, I'm his I'm his only child and and I was going, you know, you can go now. It's okay. So we had this. We had he had a very nice death, if that's possible. And we reconciled. And 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 also, I can I can honestly leave that part of my life, and and still feel that even though it was a horrible experience and I, I, it made me richer. And obviously I wish that my dad was still here and I wish I could speak to him and, and whatever, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been, if that makes sense. It does, it does. Do you think yeah. you, that immense grief, as Matt was saying, do you think that affected your symptoms or were you pretty steady up until where you are now? Um, I think it obviously, any stress that you go through obviously aggravates all your symptoms. Um, but, but I also, I was doing all the things that I needed to do to get better or maybe not all the things because I still <laughs> relapsed a lot in, in eating things that I shouldn't. And also that's, that's my pattern is I get stressed and then I eat. So, and, and obviously I was still doing that during this time but also I'd, I'd learned to to forgive myself and just move on rather than beat myself up out about it so I was yeah. slowly still moving in the right direction mm. I think self-forgiveness is a huge part of healing too that's a roadblock for a lot of people in so many so many yeah. ways shapes and forms but um so where would you say you are today and what do you think were the biggest um contributors to your health now well 
I'm a very different person now to who I was before I got ill. I'm much calmer. I know when I need to slow down and, and rest and I'm much more forgiving for my, over myself and I'm much more forgiving to everyone else around me as well. Um, so I feel that I've gained so much from this illness and, and I think the biggest, the biggest change in my life was going for my first fascia treatment. Uh, so a friend of mine who I'd met through one of these um, sugar addiction courses had been to something called um, a fascia treatment or a, <clears throat> and it's, it's a fascia balance machine that, that shakes up your, your fascia and releases toxins from your tissues. Um, and I'd read about it and they, they've also got really good podcasts. This is all in Swedish, unfortunately, but but it's very good. And I started listening to that. And my friend was saying that she walked out of this uh, treatment and she felt like she was walking on air. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I started listening to the podcast and it all resonated so much with me about, because they started, they, they were going back to how we ended up in this mess where we just see the mind and the body as two different things. And, and the psychic and the, and the somatic is two different things and, and how we, we have to start putting everything together. So the fascia is, is only been an organ recognized as, a, as an organ of the organ of the body since I think 2014. Or it was discovered, I think, in 14, not discovered, but, but kind of more realized as, a, as, a, as a something of, of value. In 14, and I think in in 2017, it was recognized as a as an organ of itself, and it's the body's largest organ. And um, and understanding the fascia means that you have to put everything back together as as a whole. So the whole body, the body, everything's connected. So your toe, your toe is connected to your brain. Everything is connected. And once you realize that, and you start looking at the body in that way. It, everything shifts so, and then so I, I thought this is what I want to do I want to work with this uh, and um, so I thought I've, I've got to see the man who created this machine so I booked with him and, and I thought oh I'll never get an appointment but I, I went on the internet and it's like oh there's an appointment next week and I can go oh this is meant to be <laughs> so I went and and when I come out of that treatment I was so tired and I went back to a flat in Stockholm where we where I stayed, and I just lay down on the bed, and I could my stomach was literally in uproars. I and I've got pictures of this or or a video of this where you can see my body, just, my my stomach, my abdomen's just moving violently, and that's and I and that's kind of when I realized I had these intestinal worms as well, and. Um, so I started looking into to that and um, and then I, I went back because uh, this fascia treatment was also available in my home time from, from a woman here. So I booked for a second treatment and walking out of the second treatment because I'd, I'd lost all this weight. I was just skin and bones and I'd lost my, my breasts. So they were just little flaps. And walking out of my second treatment, I could feel them, physically feel these, my breasts filling up as if I was breastfeeding. 
because it because what the fascia treatment does it just kicks your uh, your bodily fluids um they 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 um they get them going again i think that's that's what i'm trying to say so it increases the flow in the lymph system and mm -hmm. it, it basically if you have stagnation in your tissues which you do when you have inflammation it kicks it it it, it moves it around um so much sense it's like moving all the toxins and stagnant yeah. things in your body and just like bringing you back to life so is yeah. that something you're doing now regularly yeah so basically after this uh these two treatments i thought this is just amazing um i need to know more and and around the time then i was looking into doing the course and it was really expensive and i thought oh i can't afford this but i really want to do it um but and then because of my my dad passing i inherited some money and then so i thought yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to buy one of these machines and I'm going to learn how to do this. And oh, wow. I, so, so I got the machine and I started treating myself almost daily with, with this, like I would treat my arm and my hand and, um, and starting slowly to feel the tissues kind of warming up again and, and releasing all these toxins. Uh, but also you have to be a bit careful because, because of the herxing and everything you, 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 if you over treat, then it's not great. Um, but, but yes, yeah, slowly I'm, I'm clawing my way back to health. Uh, but, but the like biggest a big part of your transformation, this, yeah. this discovery. Yeah, no, that was, and, and also the vitamins, like vitamin C. So if I, if I overtreat, I know I, then I can go back and take really, really high doses of vitamin C. And then that would, that, what that will take care of the toxins that I'm releasing. So it's, it's a very delicate dance. And, and also looking at the body as, as an ecosystem. Um, I, I don't believe that we're ever going to be able to get rid of all these these things in our body that we've amassed through our life that they're always going to be there but what we're going to have to do is just treat ourselves with kindness and respect and give the body the nourishment that it needs and also move so that we we have a, a, a movement in the fascia and and when you can't move when you're too sick to move then this machine is very very good because it, it helps you and also the, the saunas and and the hot baths and everything that that increases your pulse and it helps you rid of rid the toxins from your body um and and so just that's, oh i'm sorry. sorry to interrupt um it sounds like that's been such a a huge part of your journey and your learnings is is the self-respect and the self-love mm. and mm. and listening to your own intuition and and it sounds like now you're being called to help others with with this is that yeah right? yeah it's so amazing and it's really that that what we were talking about before the podcast about giving back to the community uh and and you basically help yourself by helping others and that's um that's such a a a nice realization that I've had in the last couple of years is that through giving to others, you give to yourself and that, um, and I've, I've actually managed now to heal my relationship with my daughter and, or at least we're on our way to, <laughs> um, 
and also possibly with my husband, even though we're still separated, but we're, we're much better friends now than we were before. Uh, and we, yeah, we, we respect each other and we give each other the freedom to do what we want. Um, so all of these things and looking at, at your whole life as an ecosystem and, and finding the balance and, and yoga has helped me so much with that, finding balance, because when you balance, suddenly you, you learn to balance on your arms. I never thought possibly that my body could do these things. And it, it's, it's a realization that if I can do this, I can do anything. <laughs> and, well, I think and the body truly wants to heal and you clearly have overcome some very, very difficult obstacles and found your way here. And I can assure you this podcast is going to help so many people. And I am sure that you're, you doing the fascia treatments is going to help so many as well. And um, mm. so we have, we have a, uh, a final question for you. Um, if you could do one thing differently during your journey, what would it be? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I would do anything different because everything that I've done so far has led me to where I am now. So all the steps that I took, I think I, I needed to take them to get here. Um, but, it, but yes, obviously it would have been great if I'd been able to to speak up for myself earlier I, I think that the, the journey would have been shorter but then if it if I had maybe I hadn't learned all those things that I needed to learn so I don't think I don't think looking at the past and wishing it was different is helpful so I think rather looking at the future and looking what will I do next is is more it's more serving of, of actually going forward, if that makes sense. It does. So, that's beautiful. I think so many of our listeners need to hear that because so many people are kicking themselves for not doing something or wanting things to be done faster. And if you can trust the journey that you're on and believe that yeah. this is all happening to you and for you and for a reason. Yeah. I have one, one more little story I'd like to tell, uh, which is, I just um, I I found some um, something untowards in my vagina, and I decided that because I was working obviously in the gynae ward, so I I I um, had to go and see my old colleagues and have this examined, and it's it, it's not great. You don't want to be doing that, but but I did, and and they they found something that they wanted to do a biopsy on. And also at the time, they also found a polyp in my uterus that they wanted to remove. And, um, and, and I said, but I think this is caused by, by the worms that I have in my stomach that nobody wants to accept that they're there. I've had multiple uh, stool tests that have all come back negative. Um, I've even handed in a live worm to my GP's office and they, they, that, that, ex that still came back negative. Um, and, but, but I was thinking, I knew this is, this is what's my problem. Um, uh, so 
there was a colleague that I highly, highly, highly respect. She's she's a very, very good surgeon. She's a very good gynecologist. Uh, and she was saying, you've got this polyp. It's not going to go away by itself. We need to remove it. And I said, okay, well, give me some time. I don't want to do it straight away because I want to treat, treat the inflammation in my body first. So they sent me a, a call to be operated on. And they, they, I found this in, in, um, in uh, around Easter 2021. Uh, sorry, no, it was this, this year, to, so 2022. And then they, they called me for an operation in the middle of the summer. And I, I was like, no, I'm not ready. Um, and I phoned up and cancelled. And I said, look, I, I just want, I want, I want a bit more time because uh, I think I can sort this out myself. Um, but obviously I want it checked because I'm not against healthcare. Um, so, and they said, okay, fine. Uh, we'll call you in the autumn. And so I was called to this um, operation last week, last Tuesday. And um, and I said, oh, I don't really want to have an operation. I want, want you to look at what's there first. And I said, but it's not going to be gone. Okay. Uh, okay, well, I'll come for the operation and then you can look before the operation. So I had this discussion with my doctor uh, and um, and then so they rolled me into the operations and they said, oh, but where are these uh, where are these things that that um that you want to, to take a biopsy on well they're not there anymore and then they did a a scan on the uterus and they they found that the polyp that was there had decreased it wasn't gone but it had decreased in size and they said to me that this would never go away by itself and and so i felt oh this is such a nice uh, confirmation on the fact that what I'm doing with my body is the right thing and they have obviously totally denied that it had anything to do with the herbs uh, and I said and they said oh but there's no there's no uh, <clears throat> evidence for this and I said there's plenty of evidence if you just know where to look but nobody wants to look at it because there's no money in it and that's the sad sad truth but I just wanted to share that story as well because Amazing. yeah also, we and just I've, have to say, Rachel and I clearly see the progress in you. I mean, reading your questionnaire, speaking to you about your experience. I mean, the transformation you've had has been radical. And it's amazing to see you here today, so healthy and so well, sharing everything you've done with our community to help everybody listening to this podcast. So thank you also so much for coming in and joining the Tickwood Camp podcast from Sweden to you know our international audience to bring all the great things you brought to this podcast and I also want to give a special thank you to Rachel Barnes. Rachel, you were awesome. And we are so happy to have you back as a co-host. And we were certainly going to be inviting you back again for some future collaborations about Rachel. So also, Rachel, thank you so much. And this has been a great, great interview. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for letting me share my story. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Alsa Ridemark Kersley. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First of all, if you'd like to learn more about Alsa, please check out her Instagram at A-W-E-S-O-M-A-S-O-R. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com backslash bite to review the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review 
on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 250 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. And as always, thank you for listening.